Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Thank you for joining today's podcast, the second in our series of three on the law of shipbuilding. I am Sally-Ann Underhill, a partner in the transportation group of Reed Smith. I specialise even in shipping and deal with all types of shipping disputes in the broadest sense, including sale contracts, logistics issues, and of course, shipbuilding. I'm Thor Malouf, also a partner in the transportation group of Reed Smith. My practice focuses on all aspects of dry shipping, including charter party, bill of lading and shipbuilding disputes, as well as logistics. In today's second episode, we'll discuss refund guarantees and delays during construction of ships. And in our third episode, we'll go on to talk about cancelling shipbuilding contracts and warranty claims. Many thanks, Thor. So we're going to begin this episode by talking about refund guarantees. So the starting point is that legal title to a vessel under construction only passes to the buyer on delivery. The buyer therefore takes a risk in paying each instalment for an asset he does not own. Refund guarantees mitigate this risk and the credit risk of the yard as well in case the yard fails to build the ship in accordance with the contract. In such a case, the buyer's primary remedy in practice is for a refund of the instalments it's paid. So, what events do refund guarantees cover? First of all, a refund guarantee will only secure the payment of refunds, plus interest, due under the shipbuilding contract. So importantly, too, they do not cover any other amounts that might be payable by the yard. So in particular, if the buyer accepts a repudiatory breach of the shipbuilding contract by the yard, for example, any claim for damages will not be covered by the refund guarantee. And this is important even if that claim is for less than the limit of the refund guarantee. So in a rush to secure slots at a yard, it might be tempting to look to use an old form of guarantee or to agree to a yard's standard form guarantee but it pays to look at the wording carefully. And I'm gonna go through some points which I think you should have in mind. So the first thing to note is that there are two distinct types of guarantee and the differences are stark and important. So first one is what we would call a true guarantee, which I'll also refer to as a see to it guarantee. And a true guarantee is a secondary payment obligation. The guarantor, the person giving the guarantee, is generally only liable to the buyer if and to the same extent that the yard itself is liable to the buyer. So if there's a dispute, the buyer must first establish that the yard is indeed liable to pay the buyer the refund amount, typically through arbitration proceedings under the shipbuilding contract, and then wait for the yard to fail in making payments before it can then call on the refund guarantee. These true or see to it guarantees are therefore the ones that yards tend to prefer. The second type though, a demand bond or an on-demand guarantee is a primary obligation on the party giving the guarantee to pay. 
and that's therefore independent of the position between the yard and the buyer. Payment under a demand bond is required to be made simply against presentation of one or more specified documents. And they will usually be something along the lines of a written demand for payment, accompanied by a statement from the buyer that the refund has fallen due for payment from the yard, but has not yet been paid. So unless there are express words to the contrary in the guarantee, a demand bond allows the buyer to call the refund guarantee, to call on the refund guarantee even, as soon as it believes that the yard's obligation to refund the pre-delivery instalments has arisen. And unless the guarantor has notice of fraud, payment has to be made against the specified documents even if it looks to the guarantor as though the buyer might not in fact be entitled to the refund under the terms of the shipbuilding contract. These demand bonds are therefore much preferred by buyers. So, what type of guarantee do you have? First of all, it's worth noting that although on-demand guarantees are supposed to ensure that the buyer does not have to wait for his money, and despite attempts by the courts to clarify the law, in many cases it's difficult to predict how a court or arbitration tribunal will classify a particular guarantee. And as you can predict, such determinations can take time. But the latest guidance from the English courts comes from the Court of Appeal in what I will call the Rainwood case. That case was about the construction of a guarantee. Was it an on-demand guarantee or a see-to-it guarantee? The reason for the proceedings was that the buyer and the guarantor needed to know whether or not the guarantor's obligation to pay out under the guarantee depended on the outcome of the ongoing arbitration between the buyer and the yard about the buyer's liability under the shipbuilding contract. The guidance from the Court of Appeal that comes out of the Rainwood case is that the wording of the guarantee as it would be interpreted by a normal business person is paramount. And the Court of Appeal found that the words, the guarantor hereby irrevocably, absolutely and unconditionally guarantees, in accordance with the terms hereof, as the primary obligor and not merely as the surety, would all convey to a reasonable businessman that the guarantor's obligations were not conditional on the liability of the buyer. I'm just going to say them again, irrevocably, absolutely, unconditionally, as primary obligor and not merely as surety. Secondly, it also said in the guarantee that our obligations under this guarantee shall not be affected or prejudiced by any dispute between you as the builder and the buyer under the contract. It therefore expressly provided that the guarantor's obligations were unaffected by any disputes under the underlying shipbuilding contract. In the Court of Appeals view, this language put it beyond any argument that this could be a see-to-it guarantee, which would of course, as a secondary liability, be dependent on the yard's liability to the buyer under the shipbuilding contract. It's also worth noting that the Court of Appeal affirmed a takeaway point from the earlier case of the rainy sky, that where a term in a guarantee can have more than one possible meaning, it is generally appropriate to prefer the construction that makes more business common sense and to reject any others. Also really importantly, in coming to its finding in Rainwood, the Court of Appeal has moved away from older guidance which indicated that there's a strong presumption that a guarantee not given by a bank or financial institution 
would pretty much always be a see-to-it guarantee rather than an on-demand guarantee. In other words, the identity of the guarantor now matters a lot less to the construction of a guarantee. So you basically look at what it says, not who gave it. And although I think I've mentioned it before, let's really concentrate on why it matters. Why does it matter what type of guarantee you've got? As an on-demand guarantee is a primary obligation, the guarantor is not entitled to the benefit of defences and limitations that the yard may have been able to raise under the shipbuilding contract. On-demand guarantees therefore often, but not always, provide for payment on making a demand as soon as there has been a failure to pay or perform by the yard, regardless of whether the yard considers that it has a defence. This obviously differs from the situation under a see-to-it guarantee, where the guarantor's liability is secondary and therefore subject to the defences and limitations available to the yard. Under a see-to-it guarantee, the guarantor is generally only liable to the buyer if and to the same extent that the yard itself would be liable to the buyer. Following the Rainwood decision, there will no doubt be many refund guarantees, either already issued or in standard forms in people's books, which would now be considered on-demand guarantees rather than see-to-it guarantees as previously thought. The danger of this is illustrated, again, by a relatively recent case, the Empiriki Bank. So in that case, a payment was validly demanded under a demand bond, but it subsequently became clear that the beneficiary was not, in fact, entitled to the guaranteed amount under the underlying shipbuilding contract. The Court of Appeal held that once a valid demand had been made under the demand bond, the beneficiary acquired a complete and immediately enforceable cause of action against the guarantor. So in that case, following payment out under the guarantee, when an arbitration under the shipbuilding contract found that the buyer was not entitled to a refund at all, questions were obviously raised. However, the bank's liability under the guarantee was not expressed to be contingent to the findings of the arbitration. So therefore, for a yard or guarantor, there's a real pitfall if an on-demand guarantee has been issued and called upon, but the buyer is not actually entitled to a refund from the yard. In such cases, it may be difficult for the guarantor to claim a reimbursement of money already paid out under the guarantee. Although there's no clear precedent in English law as to whether the guarantor would have a claim for reimbursement from the buyer, there has been some support for the idea from the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal in Rainwood said the following obiter, and it's worth reading, and I'm going to read it to you so you can see what they said. This is the Court of Appeal speaking. It said, I am inclined to think a demand guarantee does not involve the beneficiary being entitled to retain the proceeds of the guarantee, irrespective of the merits of any dispute as to the obligee's entitlement and the underlying relationship. If the position between obligor and obligee is subsequently determined to be that the debt or obligation was not owed, it would appear from, and they cite a Cargill case, that the obligee is liable to account to the obligor to the extent that the guarantee has provided payment in excess of the obligee's entitlement. A demand guarantee provides that where there is a dispute, the guarantor must pay now and argue later. It would be surprising if it gave the beneficiary a pay now and never have to argue entitlement. 
So looking, therefore, at attempts to delay payments by refund guarantors, which you can imagine can be quite frequent, if there is a dispute between a buyer and a yard where the yard's refund obligations are secured by guarantee, the yard or the guarantor may sometimes try to take action in its local courts to prevent payment being made. In general, the English courts will not excuse a guarantor's obligation to pay under a guarantee on the basis that it would contravene a local court order to do so. So in the Splittoff and Bank of China case in 2015, an on-demand refund guarantee was governed by English law with an English jurisdiction clause. The guarantor sought to rely on a Chinese judgment prohibiting payment under the guarantee to avoid an English court judgment against it for failure to pay under the guarantee. The High Court found that the guarantor's exposure to sanctions in its home country of China was an extraneous matter and was not a reason to delay or avoid its obligation to pay out under the guarantee. The English courts are also willing to grant anti-suit injunctions in an effort to prevent continuation of local proceedings aimed at frustrating payments under refund guarantees. So in the Crescendo case that I referred to in our first episode, a yard and its guarantor disputed the buyer's right to terminate a shipbuilding contract and to claim a refund of instalments. The tribunal appointed under the shipbuilding contract and the guarantee found the buyer was entitled to the refund of its instalments and ordered the guarantor to pay the refunds if the yard did not. The guarantor bank brought proceedings in China alleging fraud against the buyer and preventing payments under the guarantee and claimed that the natural forum for such claims was China. The High Court, however, dismissed the guarantor bank's arguments and issued an anti-suit injunction against the continuance of the Chinese proceedings. Thank you, Sally-Ann. I'll talk now about how delays impact the legal framework under shipbuilding contracts. So most shipbuilding contracts set an agreed delivery date, with liquidated damages being payable to the buyer, usually by a reduction in the purchase price, in case the yard misses that delivery date. Then there's a system for calculating a kind of long stop date on which the buyer ultimately gets the right to cancel the ship if it hasn't been delivered. Most shipbuilding contracts also contain a mechanism by which the yard can push back that contractual delivery date, just in case of certain types of delay. Typically, there'll be something called permissible delays. They tend to include usual force majeure type delays, Usually a yard will be given quite a lot of lenience to push back the contractual delivery date due to these permissible delays because they're seen as quite reasonable and excusable delays as long as the contractual provisions on notifying these delays and also contractual requirements to mitigate these delays are complied with. That compliance with the notice and mitigation is quite important as we'll come to see. Shipbuilding contracts usually also permit a yard to push back the delivery date for other types of delays, and they're sometimes called non-permissible delays, but only to a limited extent. And again, usually only if certain formula-like notification provisions are complied with. Let's look at an example of permissible delays. This time we'll look at strikes at the yard. Now, several types of shipbuilding contracts deal with strikes as a type of permissible delay. 
So, for example, the BIMCO new build con form provides for strikes to count as permissible delays by including with them within the definition in that contract of force majeure. It says strikes, lockouts or other industrial action, but only if of a general nature and not limited solely to the builder and or the subcontractors or their employees. And then goes on to say, provided that such events were not caused by the error, neglect, act or omission of the builder or its subcontractors and were not or could not reasonably have been foreseen by the builder at the date of the contract and the builder shall have made all reasonable efforts to avoid and minimise the effects of such events on the delivery of the vessel. Now that quote from the new build con form demonstrates the usual kind of contractual requirements for benefiting from permissible delays. They have to have actually caused delay in construction and there are requirements for the yard to mitigate the effects of the delay. Now, when a shipbuilding contract requires a permissible delay to be outside the control of the yard or wording to that effect, something to do with not in the yard's control, it'll be open to the buyer to argue that the relevant delay wasn't a permissible delay because in the case of strikes, the yard has possibly acted unreasonably in the way it dealt with its own workforce. Now, we should point out the courts have been quite sympathetic to arguments like that. So, for example, in the case of Channel Island Ferries versus Sealink, it was found that the yard was entitled to rely on a force majeure exception of strikes at the yard only if there was nothing they could reasonably have done to have avoided the strike or to mitigate its consequences. So for this reason, the types of strikes that are capable of generating force majeure delays and qualifying as permissible delays under shipbuilding contracts tends to be those affecting a whole or quite a large part of the shipbuilding industry in the country where the ship's being built, and probably not just the particular yard where the ship's being built. Now, let's look at delays due to incorporation of novel and innovative systems and machinery. Where a project involves new innovative designs and systems like scrubbers, carbon reduction or dual fuel systems, the risk of delays due to defects or issues with those particular systems is, of course, increased. And we spoke during the last episode of this podcast about the increase in new build designs incorporating things like dual LNG and LPG fuels, which could burn both traditional bunkers as well as LNG and LPG, exhaust gas cleaning equipment, requirements to comply with CEI and EXI regulations, ammonia-ready vessels, and things like incorporation of sails. All of these types of newer technologies increase the scope for project delays due to factors like the work involving integrating third-party machines and designs and equipment into the rest of the vessel systems. They all raise the spectre of latent defects, defects which could not have been discovered by the exercise of reasonable care. Now, shipbuilding contracts typically include delays due to latent defects or those which couldn't have been discovered by the exercise of reasonable care within that definition of permissible delays. So, for example, the SAJ form includes in the definition of permissible delays Defects in materials, machinery or equipment which could not have been detected by the builder using reasonable care. So, 
the yard will be able to push back the delivery date for the vessel where there were delays due to latent defects. As usual, as long as there's been causation between the latent defect discovered and the actual delay to the build. Yards would typically be expected to do this to show the causation using critical path analysis. That helps them to demonstrate the difference that that latent defect has made to the critical path of the construction project. And of course, the yard will need to make sure it complies with any notice requirements for claiming delays under the shipbuilding contract. Yards should bear in mind that the date from which a delay can be claimed for latent defects is typically calculated by reference to the date on which, if the required degree of care had been used, the defect should have been discovered, rather than the date of installation of the item. This does raise questions when it would have been reasonable to have tested that relevant part of the system that went wrong? And would it have been possible or reasonable to have done that prior to installation on the rest of the vessel system? Now, new and innovative designs also raise the spectre of shortages of materials. Increased demand for inclusion of innovative systems might result in shortages of certain materials. So, for example, where batteries are being incorporated, global lithium shortage might have a knock-on effect on the battery availability. Several standard shipbuilding contracts do include shortage of material or delays in delivery within the definition of permissible delays. So yards might try and rely on those defined permissible delays after shortages or delays in delivery from third-party suppliers. For example, the SAJ form includes shortage of materials, machinery or equipment delays in delivery, etc., within its definition of permissible delays. Where the shipbuilding contract requires permissible delay to be outside the control of the yard, or similar wording, a buyer might again try to argue that this shortage or delay was not really outside the yard's control. This requirement would certainly involve the yard only being able to claim delays due to unexpected shortages. However, it's not very clear how far a yard would have to go to source replacements for the item that's short. By contrast with the situation with strikes that I mentioned earlier, the case law in this area in English law indicates a yard might not actually be required to do almost whatever it takes to resolve the shortage issue causing a delay. For example, it's not clear that a yard is obliged to pay a higher price to source alternative parts as long as there's a general shortage of the relevant part, although the law is far from clear on this. Where a yard has been let down by a third party or a subcontractor, the definition of permissible delays needs to be read very carefully. In general, whether or not failure on the part of a subcontractor counts as being an effect beyond the yard's control is really a question of fact, and it's not necessarily a legal question. But some clauses in shipbuilding contracts do expressly require causes of delays to be beyond the control of both the yard and beyond the control of the yard subcontractors or the yard suppliers. So, for example, under the SAJ form, there's a kind of sweeping up provision in the definition of permissible delays saying other causes or accidents beyond the control of the builder, its subcontractors or suppliers. And that's been interpreted to mean 
the cause of delay has to be beyond the control of both the yard and its subcontractor. Now I'll just cover briefly the prevention principle. Those who have an interest in the law of shipbuilding will have heard of this prevention principle. It's a concept that is more usually encountered in land-based construction projects, but yards have tried to rely on it in the context of delays to shipbuilding projects, so it's worth covering. The idea behind the prevention principle is just that there's supposed to be an implied term in shipbuilding contracts to the effect that neither party to the shipbuilding contract should prevent the other one from fulfilling its obligations under it. If they do prevent the other party from fulfilling its obligations, then the obligation to complete the construction of the vessel by the specified date is replaced by an implied obligation to complete it only within a reasonable time. So, if the prevention principle applies to a particular shipbuilding project, it might excuse the yard from the buyer's remedies from delay to the project. If the yard's been delayed by acts or omissions by the buyer, and that could mean in some situations the yard being let off the hook for delays where the yard hasn't necessarily satisfied the other formal criteria under the contract for getting an extension. So I mentioned before notice provisions, for example. So let's have a look at the leading case on the prevention principle, and that's Adyard Abu Dhabi against Marine Services Limited. It's often called Adyard. So in Adyard, the yard claimed the buyer couldn't rescind the shipbuilding contract for delays because delays had been caused by the buyer's failures to agree to some adjustments to the contract terms, which adjustments were to incorporate certain design changes, which were in turn imposed by the flag state of the vessel. As a reminder, the prevention principle said to replace the obligation to complete the ship by a specified date with an implied obligation to complete it within a reasonable time. Now, the court found there hadn't actually been a failure to comply by the buyer, and that meant there was no prevention that the yard could then complain of. However, the court did say, obiter, that if there had been such a failure or a prevention, this particular type of failure or prevention, being a failure to agree an adjustment to the contractual terms, fell within the definition of permissible delays under this shipbuilding contract anyway. And the fact that it fell within that definition and that contractual framework meant that that type of failure or prevention was intended by the parties to be dealt with inside that contractual framework and regime for permissible delays in the contract. Now, complying with that framework and that regime required the yard to give notice. And that meant that this type of failure or prevention couldn't be relied on by the yard outside of the permissible delays framework and regime in the contract in order to give the yard more time to complete the vessel. So the yard couldn't get more time or rely on the prevention principle in that case. There was a similar result for similar reasons in the cases of Zhuzhan Jinyan Shipyard and Golden Exquisite, in the case of Saga Cruises and Fincantieri, and in another case, Yangshu Gohin Corporation, known as Sainty Marine and Prestige Shipping. Now, in the Golden Exquisite case, the yard argued the buyer's cancellation of two vessels in a series of 14 
was wrong for prevention by the buyer. The yard said the cancellation of those two vessels prevented and delayed the construction of other vessels in the series because the cancelled vessels physically remained and occupied slots in the yard. The buyer's case was that the express permissible delay regime that was set out in the shipbuilding contract was a complete code and that covered this type of prevention, so leaving physically the two cancelled vessels in the yard, and the yard hadn't complied with the formal requirements for getting an extension of the delivery date under that express code for getting permissible delays in the shipbuilding contract. And the High Court held that, firstly, it was an implied term of shipbuilding contracts that neither party should wrongfully prevent the other from performing And even legitimate actions by one party under one part of a contract. So, for example, in this case, cancelling some of the vessels in the series, although contractually allowed, could still in theory be an unlawful prevention of performance under another part of the contract. However, the prevention principle doesn't apply because the contract already expressly set out the consequences of the type of unlawful prevention in question. Here, the contract already made express provision for that type of cause of delay. So those express provisions applied and had to be complied with if there was to be an extension of the contractual delivery date. So in that case, the permissible delay regime under the contract did make express provision for delays due to issues beyond the seller's control which the court found included this unlawful prevention by the buyer of leaving the cancelled ships in the yard. So unfortunately, as the yard hadn't complied with the contractual formalities of giving notice in order to get permissible delays under the shipbuilding contract, it just couldn't claim an extension of the delivery date under it. So what are our takeaway points? What should the yards do in case of delays? It's clear from the case law we've just spoken about that yards have come off badly before the courts in cases of delays. And yards would do well to focus on documenting and claiming delays under shipbuilding contracts, including the following points. Claim for permissible delays as they arrive and make sure records of delays are supported by things like critical path analysis and are kept. Make sure that all formal notification provisions are complied with, because this has been a key reason for courts denying yards rights to rely on delays. The failures to have been given contractual notice have been the driver for yards to rely on the prevention principle in the first place, but they might not need to do so. And keep clear records about what has been done to overcome delays or investigate defects in machinery and materials. If modifications are agreed, which might involve need for additional time, then that additional time must be agreed in writing and documented clearly. Thanks very much, Thor. Thank you all for joining today's podcast, the second in our series of three on the law of shipbuilding on refund guarantees and delays during shipbuilding. From me, Sian Underhill, and Thor Maloof from Reed Smith. Please join us for our third episode in which we will talk about cancelling shipbuilding contracts and warranty claims. Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, 
please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and reedsmith.com, and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.